I'd like to read a verse from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It's a very profound verse in so many ways. Zechariah 12:10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. It's very interesting when you read that passage where it first says, they will look on me, and then it goes to the third person, him. Obviously talking about the integration of the triune Godhead. And this is our prayer, is it not? At least should be at this time that that God will pour out His Spirit on His people Israel. And that in these days there will be a mighty changing of, of their hearts towards their their Messiah, and certainly for all of us, this is a a very uh, trying time as we think of what's going on in the world today and uh, the potentials of events uh, looming ahead. Uh, I think in all of this, we need to really be praying for wisdom for our president particularly as well. So as we pray together, let's keep that in mind. Our Father, we're so grateful to you that no matter what happens, you're not caught unaware. You know all things. To you, everything has been seen long before it ever took place, that you are sovereign in the universe, and nothing occurs without your permission or by your power. And so, Lord, we would pray for your people, Israel. We ask, even as they they have lost this son of Israel in the uh, disaster of two of a week ago, that this will even somehow, some way, begin to open a door in the hearts of the people of that nation to begin to see the one whom they pierced and to recognize that Jesus is truly the Messiah. It'll take a great miracle, Lord, from you to bring this about, but you are the God of miracle. And Father, I do pray for our president as he has these very significant issues uh, weighing down upon him. We're grateful that he has good advisors, many of whom are, are children of, of yours. And we just pray that he will seek good advice and that he will act in accordance with uh, the divine guidance he receives through prayer and counsel. Father, we pray that uh, somehow you might remove or change or transform Saddam Hussein, that war might not be necessary. Whatever it would take, we pray for your presence to be poured out over there. Certainly, this is the land of Babylon, the land where Nebuchadnezzar elevated himself to divinity, and and you spoke, and, and you transformed his life. And Lord, we know you could even do that today, as unlikely as that seems in human ways. So we just pray for your will to be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven. And so we commit ourselves to you for this hour. Pray that you'll guide us through a study of your word this morning, that your spirit will take what we read and what we study and apply the truth to our hearts to realize that even though these events transpired over 3,000 years ago, humans are no different today than they were then. And we have the same great needs and you are the same great God. 
And so may our faith be built up in you through our study in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the 19th chapter of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 19, right at the end of the chapter, beginning at verse 40. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah and also half of Israel accompanied the king. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative to us. Why then are you angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king, therefore we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. <laughs> Great way to end a chapter, is it not? I think one of the truths that you and I have come to realize simply by living the number of years that we have all lived is that the enemy never gives up. The enemy is relentless. Satan is always at work endeavoring to tear down God's kingdom. And if he can't get us one way, he will come by another route. He's extremely inventive. What we find here is that David has been delivered from the threat of Absalom. And Absalom has been killed, his army has been dispersed, and peace has returned to the land. And he has also been basically reunited with the people who had chosen to follow after Absalom. And they were, they're going to restore David to his throne with a great celebration. But what we discover is how quickly the celebration can turn sour. How quickly a bad attitude can ruin the festivities. Jealousy raises its ugly head yet another time. Judah and its immediate neighbor Benjamin have gone forth to bring David back from Gilead into Judah and, and of course to put him ultimately on the throne in Jerusalem. But they had not waited for the representatives from other tribes to come so that they could all be together in this great reunion ceremony. The scripture here that we read mentions half. In verse 40, it mentions that half, also half the people of Israel accompanied the king. That doesn't mean half of the total population of Israel. It means representatives from half of the tribes of Israel had come but representatives of half had not come as well. That can be, I think, derived from that. So who do we have here? Again, reminding ourselves that from Dan, way up in the north up here, to Beersheba down here in the south, this is traditional Israel. And of course, under David's rule, it expanded way beyond that. But that's, where the, that's the homeland of the 12 tribes. 13 tribes, of course, if you consider Levi. And so what we've got here is Judah, which is down here, and Benjamin, which is immediately to the north. Benjamin sits right smack on top of Judah. 
So they are the southernmost tribes. And what we ultimately discover is that Simeon becomes sort of absorbed within Judah as well. And remember on this side over here you had Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh over here. So when they say half of the tribes were participants in this, we're probably talking about from this half tribe of Manasseh, we're probably talking from Gad and then it's from Reuben down here that these were all participating. Judah and uh, Benjamin were participating and possibly Simeon since as I mentioned Simeon seems to get absorbed down in the southern part of Judah. So that leaves basically everything from north of Benjamin to the, to up to the Dan area. Uh, these people did not participate. So Ephraim and Manasseh and, and Asher and Zebulon and Dan and, and all those other tribes uh, were not part of this celebration because they were further to the north. And of course what they're saying is it was our idea in the first place to bring the king back. We're the ones who first raised the idea that he should come back. And remember, we read last time that David said to the tribe of Judah, why have you not invited me? <laughs> I've been invited back by the others. How come you, my, my, my family, haven't invited me back? And that's when, of course, they uh, decided to, to do that. And then they rush ahead with, with the Benjamites to uh, escort David back and ignore the fact that it would have taken time for the representatives of the more northern tribes to get there. So they could have put it off, uh, you know, a couple, three more days, whatever it would have taken. But they didn't do that. And that's what's behind this rather violent confrontation which we read about here. We find that the elders of Judah respond to the request by, or the statement, complaint actually, by the representatives of the northern tribes, respond uh, to them in a rather curt manner. Oh, after all, you know, we're the actual family of the king, so why shouldn't we be doing this? And they offended the representatives from the north. And, and I think they were legitimate in their complaint against Judah because they said in, in verse 43, we've got 10 parts in the king. We're 10 of the tribes of Israel out of 12 or let's say 13 if again if you count Levi. Uh, we're 10 out of the 13. Shouldn't that count for something? And we're the first to advise that the king be brought back. So we've got two points in our favor. And yet what we discover <coughs> is that the leaders of Judah become unreasonable. The answer, it, it says there at the end of verse 43, yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. Harsher. Go away. Don't bother us. We're family of the king. We have right of priority here. So what are we finding here? And, and what is interesting is David is not mentioned other than the fact that in the verse there, verse 40, it says now, the king went on and uh, then it says in verse 41, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, and, and then the king drops out of the picture. What happens next is just the arguing between all the elders and David is kind of shunted aside. I mean, the whole thing's about David, yet he's shunted aside and doesn't even have a role in what's taking place here. Is this not a statement about uh, human nature? The enemy is using human pride to bring about destruction. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we're flesh. He knows that the world, the flesh, and the devil 
of the, this unholy trinity are arrayed against us and, and that our flesh normally, uh, you know, without, without divine presence in our lives, without the Holy Spirit, without the Word of God, our flesh is to go with the world and the devil. That's the natural tendency. That's the draw. That's why as we look at the world around us today, it's so sick because people have no other way to go. You can't in your own flesh fight these powerful enemies that are arrayed against us. Solomon would later pen the words that we know so well, which are so profound in the 15th proverb where he says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And I think all of us have experienced the reality of that in our own lives. That if somebody speaks to us harshly and we return harshly, ooh, sparks begin to fly and, and things become very, very uh, out of hand. Whereas if we can somehow gently respond to somebody who attacks us harshly, we can maybe throw oil on troubled waters and uh, bring about peace. I think it's quite clear that neither side here was primarily concerned about the welfare of the nation, or even of David for that matter. What they're concerned about here is their own pride. I want to win. I want to be victorious. I want to show those people. And they are not concerned about what's going to be good for the country. Were there some voices of moderation here? You know, you have to believe there had to be somebody who, who had some wisdom here. But if there were any voices of moderation, they were shouted down by those who wanted their pound of flesh from the other side, and they were ignored. So that brings us incredibly <laughs> to the 20th chapter where we read, you know, almost an unbelievable account given what we've been through. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 20. Now a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the, but the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Then David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten women, the concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and placed them under guard, and provided them with sustenance, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. Here we find another passage, another account of yet another rebellion in Israel. It's kind of discouraging, isn't it? You read rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, Yet all we have to do is look around us, and that's what we see throughout history. Winston Churchill was the uh, brilliant head of the English government who, in, he was a brilliant historian as well, and one of the things that he said, which was very pithy, and he was into saying pithy things, was that war is hell. You know, if anybody knows that war is hell, Churchill would have known that. A and yet, history is just full of it. It's pretty hard to teach history without talking about war almost continuously, not continuously, but, but frequently, because it's just been 
the course of, of human existence on this planet because we simply cannot learn to live with each other in peace because the enemy is constantly stirring up our natural inclination to be belligerent and rebellious and prideful. And so that's what we keep seeing here. These are the supposed people of God. <laughs> what this tells us is the absolute folly of the unregenerate heart. I mean, the smoke has not even cleared from Absalom's rebellion yet. I mean, it's barely over. The, 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 the wounds of that are still there, not even healed. And here we have a majority of the tribes of Israel raising up a, a, a flag of rebellion and chasing off after this worthless fellow and saying they have no part in David. They had just said, let's bring David back. How come we're waiting? We should bring David back. After all, we rebelled against him. It was the wrong thing to do. Let's bring David back. And now they're doing it again. Satan knows how to activate the human self-destruct mode. He does it all the time. And he does it with great regularity. We see it over and over in the pages of Scripture. And as we read through Scripture, you know, I don't know if you've ever come to this, but sometimes I've thought, how can these people be so incredibly foolish? And yet, all I have to do is turn the news on, read the newspaper, or look around in our own society, and the answer is obvious. It's human nature. It's the natural condition. Of all of those who have not been born again, unfortunately... It's even true, though, that Christians can be trapped into acts of extreme foolishness, especially if they're not walking closely with the Lord, not reading His Word, not committing themselves to prayer. They can be trapped into these things. And we read about it all the time when somebody who has professed to be a Christian and that they're caught in this act or that act publicly, you know. And we see that this foolishness is just the natural human condition. Jeremiah, and you all know this verse very well, I'm sure. Jeremiah so perceptively wrote, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't. You know, in our flesh, we can't understand why people do what people do. It just makes no sense. Why do people follow routes of self-destruction? What was in the mind of this man Sheba? Probably hay. I, I don't know. The first two verses of this chapter set the stage for the entire chapter, the entire 20th chapter. The leaders of Israel uh, and Judah have quarreled over the plan and the carrying out of the plan for bringing David back and reinstalling him in the throne over Jerusalem. Now, we, we have to remember that David has established a, a great empire. And his empire was being ruled in peace and prosperity. Never in the history of Israel up to that point in time had they had that prosperity and that power. Never had Israel been considered to be a significant nation by the surrounding neighbors. It was just a bunch of, a bunch of sheep herders, as far as everybody else was concerned. And, and for, for a moment in time, David controls all the way from the deserts that lead down to Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River. 
controlling an area much larger than the state of Israel is today. Much larger than Israel was when Israel had the Sinai Peninsula and all the other pieces before she had to give some of them up, particularly the Sinai Peninsula. And, and David was certainly known by other nations and other kings. And yet they, they in effect, give this up because they start quarreling amongst themselves because of their pride. And that just makes me think sometimes of what happens to churches. A church is seemingly being successful and reaching out, then, then this little insidious jealousy kind of gets in there and, and people begin to form factions and pretty soon you've got to split. I think it's really important that we always remember that the enemy is at work. He's never gone somewhere else. He's always here. <laughs> I mean, he's got enough minions to, to, to basically spread around to everybody. And his minions are, are not any nicer than he is. And they're all carrying out the same program, and that's to destroy the work of God on this planet. That's their program. We know it's not going to succeed, but it sure looks pretty bad in the meantime. And, you know, the thought comes to me that the great sending force of the gospel of Jesus Christ for several hundred years was the continent of Europe. From Europe went missionaries all over the world evangelizing, and yet Europe today is spiritually as dead as any place in the world. In fact, many claim it to be the most significant mission field on this planet. So what should we, as American Christians, be praying about? Because certainly we could go that same exact route. In many ways we have, because large branches of the, quote, Protestant church in America have, have become dead spiritually for all practical purposes. And even the evangelical church is often at odds with itself. I remember, I forget whether it was 20 or 25 years ago, maybe Len or Edith remember that um, the Alliance was constantly putting more and more missionaries on the field and the number of missionaries was growing and growing and growing. And then we peaked out at, what, 1,300 or I don't remember the number. And, and then since then, we've kind of been retrenching and, and just trying to hold our, hold our own at, I don't know what the total is now, 1,000, 800? Anyway, uh, and, and it can't be because the world, oh, I, David's back there, he, he would. I was going to say, we have to remember we lost all the Canadian missionaries in that count. That's true. Oh. The 1250, 1300 was included Canada. Okay, so if you add Canada to the U.S., you still have that many? I don't think so. Yeah. No, there are fewer today than there were then, but the figures sound worse than they really are. <laughs> but is that because the need is less? Absolutely. Okay. I guess that's a point I'm trying to make. In the last alliance uh, life, I think they said something about a thousand. Uh, they wanted to have a thousand. Yeah. See, uh, uh, the U.S. Is that what you're saying? So I guess the point I'm trying to, to say is that even amongst the Christian Missionary Alliance, which has been one of the most dynamic missionizing uh, forces in the history of the church, there's been a kind of a quelling, a, a dying down maybe of the fervency, uh, the flame is not as bright, or whatever it might be. I don't know, is that, am I speaking out of turn there, David, or? Go for it, John. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that rather than be more concerned about the fairness of a plan to bring the king back to Jerusalem, that, that they could kind of work that out, come to some compromise, uh, to heal the breach in the nation that was still really kind of 
knew from, from Absalom's rebellion. But no. So in the midst of this, in the heat of this argument, a rabble rouser appears. And you can believe that's always going to happen. Look at Israel when they were in the desert, wandering around there, and, and, and Moses was up on a mountain, and they got upset, and, and they began to argue, and, and a ra some rabble-rousers rose up and said, we'll lead you back to Egypt. You know, Satan's always got a people around whom he can use. Um, and we know that in the midst of the church of Jesus Christ, there are people who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And even some of the sheep can be led astray. That's why I think it's really always important, and I, I, I would feel that, of course, what I'm going to say is uh, you, you all are doing it right, or you probably wouldn't even be here, but <clears throat> there are many of the people who call themselves Christians who think that sitting in church for an hour on Sunday morning is, is all they need, and, and they just go from Sunday morning to Sunday morning to Sunday morning with nothing in between of their own personal study of the Word of God, their own personal hours of prayer, or, or any kind of other commitment. It just doesn't work that way. Y'all know, uh, our doctors would know far better that uh, when a baby is born, if you feed the baby once a week, not going to last. So here we have this man, Sheba, sounding an alarm, blows the trumpet, we're told, and he drew many of the men of Israel away from this homecoming celebration. What do we have to do with the house of David? Let's go off and go off and do what? Make Sheba king? I'm sure that's what he would like, have liked. But the scripture calls him a worthless man. A son of Belial is basically what that means. Belial, of course, being in effect Satan, if you will, behind the pagan uh, gods of the surrounding people. Peter tells us, and, and you, all, you all know this passage very well. I spent too much time in Southern California. Y'all, actually I haven't been there in a long time. Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's found someone. His name is Sheba. Sheba, the son of Bichri. We are told that we will not be destroyed or harmed by the evil one as he goes around like a roaring lion if we remain firm in the faith. Firm in the faith. Firm in the faith only comes from personal relationship with God fed by our own personal study and prayer and fellowship. It can't come once a week only, which is what we see in so much of the so-called so Christian world today, even amongst many evangelicals. Satan can be resisted if we remain firm in the faith. Obviously, Sheba was not a man of faith. He's a tool in the hands of the evil one. The word Sheba means seven. It's like Beersheba, the well of seven. In this particular case, it implies that he is the seventh son. I mean, it's most likely why he would be given such a name anyway. And what we're told here is he's the son of a Benjamite named Bikri, and, and that's all we know about Bikri, <laughs> that he was the father of Sheba. We know nothing else about Bikri. The word Bikri means youthful. Some commentators point that since he was a Benjamite, it's possible that he was a distant relative of Saul. 
and that he was doing another Shimei thing here. You know, Shimei, the guy that threw rocks and dirt and cussed David out. It could be that he's, he's, he's out for revenge against David. He's got his own ax to grind with David. And that that's why he's, he's leading this rebellion. And so if he has this ax to grind, Satan has found a willing tool. And even though it's really only in Job that you get much direct insight as to the movements of the enemy, I think that we, as we read through the pages of the Old Testament, need to keep reminding ourselves that Satan is active and very well in all of these accounts. I mean, he's, he's not going to be personally, Satan himself, isn't going to be personally over in uh, Uga Booga land where everybody's already serving him. He's going to be where they aren't serving him and where there are followers of God. And, and so he personally is going to be here with, of course, many of his minions doing what he can to bring destruction. And so here we've got thousands, apparently, of the men of the northern tribes of Israel who hear this guy, Sheba, blow the ram's horn, you know, blat, blat, and, and they decide to follow after him. What's in their heads? <laughs> Same hay <laughs> in the other guy's head. They just went through this. It cost them 20,000 men. Now, 20,000, you know, that's a pretty good-sized number, but put it in comparison with the size of the population. It's a large amount of people. That would be like in our society, millions dying. And, of course, whatever happens in Iraq, last time we fought Iraq, we lost 280 or something like that, and we felt really, really bad about that, and we rightly should. But 280? compared to 280 million, 20,000 compared to a population of Israel in those days, which was probably just a very few million, three or four million maybe, was percentage-wise a huge number. And yet here they are, out in it again. No, we have, we have no part in David. It's funny, in the midst of this, there's a parenthesis stuck. Verse 3, then... David came to his house in Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, the concubines whom he had left to keep the house, and placed them under guard and provided for them with sustenance, but did not go in to them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. These, of course, uh, were the ten women whom Absalom had violated publicly, right on the roof, out in the broad daylight, even as the prophet had declared uh, what happened to David because of his rebellion earlier. And this highlights the seriousness of this. Now today, sexual immorality is treated glibly. It's accepted. I'm not saying you and I accept it, but in our society it's accepted. It's like it's no big deal. But from this we find it is a big deal, and not only from this, of course. <coughs> Throughout Scripture it's, it's pointed out to be a big deal. And whatever we want to argue about David having ten concubines on top of all of his wives, which was obviously not God's plan for David, and it wasn't these women's fault either. And yet they are set aside. He's, he provides for them that, you know, they, they have retirement, I guess you could say, for the rest of their lives, but they have no freedom. They're shut up and they have to stay in the royal premises without ever seeing David again, at least in, in, the, re, in the way that uh, they had originally. They may have seen him in passing, you know, hi, David. 
But uh, there was no more relationship between them and David, simply because Absalom had, brought in broad daylight, violated them as a, as a statement of his desire to dishonor his father and to take over his father's position as king. One of the things that impacts me, and, and, and I would suspect it does to you, that things happen in life that are a whole lot more serious than we allow them to be. And we make things in life more serious than they really are. Now we become really, really upset and concerned about who's going to win the Super Bowl. As if that matters at all. You know, it's fun. I like football. But who wins? You know, I, I root for one team as opposed to another. But, you know, I can't even remember who won the Super Bowl two years ago. So, you know, what profound impact does that make? None. And yet, as you read through the Old Testament, you discover that things which people do can result in their deaths. That's pretty profound for somebody. Like a, a child, a, a young man who rebels against his parents, he's supposed to be taken out and stoned to death. God views things a little bit differently than we do, I think. We're a very permissive society. And as a result, we, we pay the piper down the line. I'm not advocating we should be stoning rebellious <laughs> children because uh, I don't think that carried over into the New Testament in, in that sense. But I think we just need to view it a whole lot more seriously in our society as a whole. I know that if we personally have one, we're, we view it very seriously. But um, in our society, it needs to be viewed as, as more significant. And, and so do many things which are treated lightly, very lightly. God, in God's view, the heart of the person related to him, the, the attitude of the heart of God's people, far more important than anything else. If God has to strip away from us everything we have and make us really uncomfortable, he will do it, if that's what it takes to draw us into a right, right relationship with him, because that's of primary importance. That's why I'm really offended by the health and wealth gospel that some have been preaching and call it in the name of, of Jesus Christ and in the name of the evangelical church. Because, you know, you take a couple of verses here and there and stretch them to try to say something. But if you look through the whole of Scripture, it doesn't say that at all. Scripture makes it quite clear that our living comfortably is not God's primary concern. He does provide our every need. But as, as Erwin Lutzer was saying this morning, which I thought was quite interesting, he was talking about a, a portion of the Lord's Prayer, which says, give us this day our daily bread. And, and he said, God gave us that so that we every day would depend on him. He's not going to give us our daily bread for tomorrow and the next day and for retirement, in, you know, in the broad sense of the term here, even though most of us know where our next meal is coming from, I'm sure. And we have a house and we probably have a bank account and, and we may have some other things that we um, may not desperately need, but have them anyway. But learning daily dependence on the Lord is, is, is so important. And sometimes he'll take everything else away until we learn that. I've talked to people with the health and wealth and, and they think that Christians ought to live like kings simply because we are children of the king, that we ought to live like kings here. And that never should be sick. If you're sick, then it's because you don't have any faith. <coughs> okay. Well, you know, it just doesn't come from the pages of the Bible I read. And it doesn't come from reality either. 
I don't know where all that came from, but anyhow, it had to do with these concubines, I think. <laughs> well, let me read the next passage. We won't have time to develop this morning, but at least it'll be on your minds. Then the king said to Amasa, Call out the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went out with him, along with the Carathites and the Pelathites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet him. Now Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at his waist. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand. So he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, the man saw that, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by stood still. And as soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. So with that good image on your mind, uh, we'll pray. 